Amen. Well, let's take our Bibles, if you will, turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter number 4. 1 Thessalonians chapter number 4. We're living in some very troubling times uh, as far as our world picture is and the things that are going on in the world today. I'm thankful as God's children, as those that are saved and know that we're on our way to heaven, we don't need to fret or worry. Uh, Certainly, I think there ought to be some concern as far as uh, praying for our country, praying for those that are uh, in harm's way, some of the missionaries in other countries and things that are going on in the world, but it certainly should not be anything that we are fearful of. Uh, we know, uh, we've read the end of the story, we know where we're going to be when we uh, go to heaven, and uh, certainly a joy to know that, and what a, what a peace that seems to bring, doesn't it? Uh, it brings a great peace to our hearts. First Thessalonians chapter number 4. And verse number 7, 1 Thessalonians chapter number 4 and verse number 7. And Paul is writing to a church in the city of Thessalonica here. And so he's writing to, to people who have already trusted Christ as their Savior. They know that they're on their way to heaven. And when he addresses them in verse 7, this is who he's addressing. He says, For God hath not called us unto uncleanness, but unto holiness. We could preach an entire month's worth of messages on that one verse alone and never exhaust it. there's anything in the day that we're living in that needs to be preached on, it is verse number 7 of 1 Thessalonians 4. We are called as God's children. Not to uncleanness, but unto holiness. There's nothing wrong with preaching on holiness in the day that we live. And a lot of people say, well, that's hate speech or that's uh, being prejudiced towards somebody. Uh, No, it's being right with the Lord. Uh, We care for those people. We care for folks that are living in sin. And the reason we care for them is because we used to be one of them. In fact, sometimes we still are living in the darkness that they're in. And we have concern and care because the wonderful thing uh, that happened in our life was the Word of God did its work and brought us out of that darkness and into His marvelous light. And we want to see other people come to that same saving knowledge. We don't look down our noses at them as though we're better. We're no worse or no better than they were. But now that we're saved, God puts a calling upon us. And the calling is that we live holy. He's called us unto holiness. He therefore, verse number 8, that despiseth, despiseth not man, but God, who hath also given unto us His Holy Spirit. So somebody that bristles at the idea of living a holy life, you're not bristling against a man. If somebody gets offended, upset at something we preach in our church, they're not getting upset at Brother Greg, they're getting upset at God. They're getting upset at the Word that He has given to us. But as touching brotherly love, ye need not that I write unto you, for ye yourselves are taught of God to love one another. And indeed, ye do it toward all the brethren which are in in all Macedonia. But we beseech you, brethren, that ye increase more and more to live this holy lifestyle, this idea of loving the brethren and, and edifying and encouraging one another. Paul says, you do it, but I want you to 
increase in it. I want you to increase in it more and more. And he says in that you study to be quiet and to do your own business and to work with your own hands as we commanded you, that ye may walk honestly toward them that are without and that you have lack of nothing. <coughs> but I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep, that you sorrow not even as others which have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not prevent them which are asleep. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trump of God. And the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. Father, once again we come to you. We ask for the next few moments for you to calm our hearts and our minds. And may you lend your Holy Spirit's enlightening and illuminating of the Scriptures to us. May we clearly see and understand. I pray that you would help the decisions that need to be made in our lives to come to light that our hearts would have the conviction that is needed for us to see the areas that are lacking, the areas that need work. And then, Father, may we be willing, may we be yielded to do that which You've shown us through Your Word. May our prayer and our decision at the onset of the message, before we even get to the time of invitation, may our commitment to You be that if You will show us Your truth from Your Word, we will walk in it. Our answer will already be yes, Lord. So, Father, help us to uh, yield ourselves to you in such a way. Bless the time that is spent together as we study your word. And may it be profitable to us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In speaking to the church at Thessalonica, there were a number of people that were confused because they didn't realize that uh, there were going to be uh, people that would die in the faith, those that were saved, uh, that there were going to be some that would die before the return of the Lord Jesus. I understand that from the time of God's uh, Christ's ascension after Calvary, He went back to heaven, uh, people have expected His return. And we are living, and somebody says, well, Pastor, are we in the last days? The answer is emphatically yes. We've been in the last days for 2,000 years. Uh, ever since the Lord returned to heaven, we've been in what the Bible refers to as the last days, and He could come at any time. Uh, there, there's nothing that needs to happen prophetically uh, in order for the Lord to return. In fact, He could return before we're out of this service today. Uh, and I would pray that He is. Uh, I don't know about you guys, but when I see the way this world is going, and uh, sometimes I feel like my body doesn't want to do the things it should do, uh, health-wise, it doesn't have the same health that you used to have. I'm ready for Him. I, I hope He does come. But until he does, Paul was giving some instruction. There were people that were that were selling their houses. There were people that were that were literally getting to the place where they were not. They were quitting their jobs. They weren't even going to work because their their idea was, well, the Lord's return is is coming soon, and I I don't need to wait around for this. And there was some of that idea and mindset going on in the early church, and and he was trying to correct some of that. And then there were those that said, well, what about those who have died? Uh, those that aren't, aren't going to go up in the rapture. And some of them have 
been saved and yet they've already died. And what's going to happen to them? And so Paul writes this passage to kind of encourage both of those types of thoughts. How we're to live until the return of the Lord Jesus Christ or until God calls us home by way of death. And secondly, for those who have died that are loved ones of ours, friends of ours, we're not to be worried over that. And he gives us some instruction about what's going to take place. I want us to look first of all, as we get to verse number 7, the idea, he lays the premise out that, that the, the lifestyle that we're to be living while we're waiting, the, the expectation of his coming should be the motivation to cause us to live holy. Uh, oftentimes when I've preached on the fact that the Lord could come back at any time uh, or we study things about prophecy, I always try to ask two questions. First of one is for those that are unsaved, those that don't know Christ as their Savior. And that question is this. If you were to come back right now, are you ready? The second question is for those that are saved and those that do know uh, the Lord is their Savior. And that question is this, if you were to come back today, are you ready? You say, Pastor, aren't, aren't those the same things? For a lost person, I'm asking, are they ready as far as getting their salvation settled and knowing that they're going to go to heaven? For Christians, it's more along the lines of this idea of living holy and living in such a way that when he comes back, we're not going to be embarrassed. <coughs> so Paul is dealing with this in verse 7 as he goes down. And he speaks of this, and he says, God hath not called us unto cleanness, but unto holiness. He therefore that despiseth, despiseth not man, but God, who hath also given unto us his Holy Spirit. And then he speaks of the fact that they are to uh, abound more and more. They are to grow in this idea of uh, loving uh, one another, edifying one another, encouraging one another. In this righteousness, as he talks about this in verse number 10, and indeed you do it toward all the brethren which are in all Macedonia, but we beseech you, brethren, that you increase more and more. I think sometimes when we get saved, I know it's happened in my life, that there have been moments where I feel like I'm on cruise control, I'm just kind of coasting, and I'm not growing in the Christian life the way that I should be growing. I'm not advancing, I'm not increasing. And the truth is that we are to be pursuing uh, the life of a Christian until the return of the Lord Jesus or until He calls us home by way of death. You say, well, when do I, when do I finally get to that point where I've, I've made it? I'm there and I don't have to work, work on being uh, more of what God would want me to be anymore in my life. The answer to that is when you get to heaven. We're to be growing constantly. And Paul's prayer was that they would increase more and more. He says, and that you study to be quiet. Do your own business. He talks about uh, our testimony, this side of heaven, how important it is that we live a life that is a shining example. In verse number 12, he speaks of walking honestly towards them that are without. And then he goes on to say this regarding those that have died. He says, but I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren. Now, so there are several things I want to bring out uh, that Paul speaks of uh, that we ought to be doing while we're waiting on the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. What is it that in my life I should be doing? Well, the first thing he tells us is in verse number, four, uh, verse number 13. He says, I would not have you to be ignorant. I'm going to stop there for a minute and say this. Uh, don't be ignorant of some things. 
You say, Pastor, that's easy to say. How do I not be ignorant of some things? Well, learn. Spend time. Have a desire and a hunger and a thirst to learn the things about the Lord. And we do that by reading His Word. We do that by studying His Word. We do that by handling His Word well. And Paul says, I I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren. And I hope and pray that when the Lord comes back, He doesn't come back and find me ignorant. That I just got saved and I just kind of put my life on cruise control and never grew in the Christian life. I never never got to this place of striving to live holy and to live right. I never uh, got to the point where I was uh, trying to increase more and more in the Christian life. I never got to the place where I wanted to love the Lord Jesus and to have a a closer walk in time uh, in fellowship with Him day in and day out that was increasing day by day. I never had those desires. I, I would hate for the Lord to come back and to find me ignorant of some things because I never sought to grow in the Christian life. And he tells these folks here in Thessalonica who had pretty much just kind of put their whole life on hold. He said, I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them. And he gives them a specific thing he's wanting them not to be ignorant in. Concerning them which are asleep. And notice what he says here. That ye sorrow not, even as others which have no hope. I want to speak on this for a few moments today. The first thing I believe we need to strive for as we're waiting on the return of the Lord Jesus Christ is not to be ignorant of spiritual matters. We need to be studying. We need to be learning. We need to be growing. We need to be thriving. We need to be pressing toward the mark of the prize of the high calling of God. But secondly, I would say this. We need not sorrow as others which have no hope. Now there's a couple of things regarding this idea of sorrowing as others which have no hope. I believe that there's an immediate understanding of the fact that speaking of those who uh, have gone on ahead and and, uh, have died, and that's the specific context of this verse is referring specifically to those who have passed away. And he contrasts the way that a Christian sorrows over those that have died, over, over those that are not saved, those that don't know if they're going to go to heaven when they die, and how they sorrow when a loved one or a friend dies. And Paul's uh, instruction was this, that we don't sorrow. He doesn't tell us not to sorrow at all. Uh, there are some Christians who will read that and they'll say, well, I, I shouldn't sorrow over the death of a loved one. No, no, that's not at all what Paul was saying. Sorrow is something God built into humans. It's a way we cope and deal with grief. I would say this, uh, we're not to sorrow as others which have no hope. Tears are okay, but not the agony and the wailing of hopelessness that all is lost. Because we know something that those who are unsaved don't know. And that is that one of these days we're going to be reunited again with our loved ones and our friends. We're going to be able to spend all of eternity with them. Somebody wrote a song years ago, and the chorus of it was, We'll never say goodbye in glory in the morning over yonder. We'll never say goodbye in glory. We'll never say goodbye up there. And I've stood in a lot of funerals and preached a lot of funerals over the years. And one of the statements that I've made often in those funerals is this. The next time we see them, we won't have to say goodbye again. I'm looking forward to that day. 
And so Paul speaks here of those that have this hope. The idea that we're not to sorrow as others which have no hope. And sometimes uh, I think we misunderstand what hope is, and I've shared this a few times recently, but I want to make sure that there, if, there, if you weren't here when I shared it before, I want to share it with you again. And those that have heard it, uh, you already know what's going to be said about it. Just rejoice in it for a minute, okay? <clears throat> but the hope that the Bible speaks of is not the same kind of hope that we speak of when we say, boy, I sure hope it snows tomorrow or doesn't snow tomorrow, whichever way you are on it. By, by saying that, the way we say it, it's wishful thinking. Maybe it is, maybe it's not. I, this is what my hope is on it. Uh, but it probably isn't, maybe, kind of. And it's, it's kind of that, that gamble of, I hope it does, but there's a chance it probably won't. And that's the way we use the word hope today. When the Bible uses the word hope, it is with a confident expectation of the one who has promised us something of it coming to pass. Uh, the best way I know to explain this, a number of weeks ago, a number, a couple of months ago, several months ago, my mom, who just turned 79 uh, yesterday, um, she uh, her car broke down. And it was a car my dad had bought, him, bought her before he died. And she'd had it. It was a, about a, almost a 20-year-old car. And it broke down. It was so badly broken. We had been putting Band-Aids on it for the last four or five years, trying to keep it running for her. And it died so bad that the, the mechanic, who is a dear friend of ours, a Christian fella, uh, came and said, Greg, it, even if I could find the parts, it's just not worth it. And I don't know that I can do it. And my mom was in distress. I mean, severe distress. I've never seen my mom so upset. Uh, she had a stroke a number of uh, years ago, several years ago. And I was concerned that because of the stress of this situation that she was going to have another stroke. And that's how seriously she was distressed over it. It worked out. The Lord worked it out miraculously where I was able to purchase a car up here for her. And uh, she didn't have any money. She didn't have any credit. And she kept telling me, Greg, I don't know what I'm going to do. I said, I was wanting to surprise her with the car. And I kept saying, Mom, don't worry about it. I'll come down. We'll get you a car. And she's like, there's no sense in even coming down. You're wasting your time. You're wasting your money. I can't get a loan. I don't have a loan. I don't have money. Uh, no sense in even coming down here. And I remember the night I called her, one, one of the nights leading up to the, my time coming down there, and she was uh, sobbing on the phone, as she often did. And, Greg, there's no sense in coming down. Now, I know what I'm going to do. I've already got the car. It's going down to her. It's, it's already going to be a done deal. But she doesn't know it yet. And she is distraught. She's in distress. I hung up the phone that night, and about a half hour later, both of my sisters called me and texted. One of them called, one texted. Said, Greg, you really need to tell Mom, because she is going to end up having a stroke over this thing. So I called her up again. She's still crying, half hour later, still weeping. And I mean crying, crying. And I said... Mom, don't worry about it. God's going to take care of it. He's going to get you a car. And she said, but you just don't understand. And she went on a, a wail for about three or four minutes. And I kept trying to let her know that I already had a car for it. I couldn't even get a word in, it seemed like, for a minute or two. And I said, Mom, you need to quit worrying about it because I already got a car for you. And it got dead quiet on the other end of the line for about ten seconds. And then the first words out of her mouth is, well, what color is it? <laughs> And I thought, of all the things, what color is it? But literally, and, I, and I, I, I think this is the best way to describe this hope that the Bible speaks of is this. 
that quick, her mind went from distress, in need, in agony, not understanding, to absolute peace. She had not slept for several nights. I called her the next day. She said, Greg, for the first time, I slept all night. And she slept for the next several days until I could get the car down to her. It was interesting to watch. It was about a four-day period. I, I think I told her on a Wednesday night, and it was Monday before I could get there with the car. It was, it was so fun to watch as I called her those days afterwards. The absolute peace, the joy that there was in her. And you know why? What made the difference? She went from a place of hopelessness to a place of hope that wasn't wishful thinking, but it was confidence in the fact that her son had made a promise to her and she knew it was going to happen. It was just as if it had already been done, and it had, even though it hadn't happened yet. Can I tell you this, that when Paul speaks of this to the Thessalonian church, that we sorrow not even as others which have no hope, He's given the idea that you and I as God's people have hope. We've not made it to heaven yet. We're not there yet. But we are just as assured as if it's already happened. We have a confident hope in it. Not a wishful thinking, but a confidence in it. Not an arrogance, but a confidence in it. I was talking to a little Damon the other day, uh, Damon Newton, and uh, he came forward a few weeks ago and said, I, I want to get saved. I told him at, at uh, Steak and Shake uh, a few days later, we were meeting with him to kind of follow up with that and talk with him a little further. And uh, his dad shared with me, and Damon shared with me, he said uh, several nights before that, he said, Dad, I want to get saved. Can we go to church this Sunday? And I was explaining to Damon what salvation is, that it's not a work. It's really not even a prayer. It's a decision of the heart. I said, the truth is, Damon, you probably were saved the moment you told your dad, I want to be saved, can we go to church Sunday? Because the decision was made at that point to trust the Lord as his Savior. Because when I went through the salvation, plan of salvation with him here and later on at Steak and Shake, he understood it all and already knew it all. I could understand somebody having a desire to be saved and not knowing, but he knew. And he had made this decision. He had made this choice. So I went through all of this with him again. And I said, Damon, I want to make sure you understand this. And I said, if nothing else, for sure, when we prayed up here on that Sunday, and you let the Lord know that you were putting your faith and your trust in Him, then, then you were saved at least at that moment. But I said, the truth is you might have even been saved before that because your decision to have Him as your Savior... You're, you're, you're trusting that had already been done in your heart and in your mind. And uh, I went on to talk to him, and I said, you know, I, I wanted to make sure he clearly understood what it was. It wasn't a, a, the prayer that saved him. It wasn't the act of doing something that saved him. But it was the heart decision, the idea of trusting what the Lord Jesus Christ said. And I shared with him the story of George Wilson a number of years ago in the 1800s when they used to, to move mail about by stagecoach and, and horse, horseback. And uh, George Wilson and another friend of his who uh, held up a U.S. postal worker at gunpoint. And they robbed him. And they ended up catching up with George Wilson. And they arrested him and they found him guilty of endangering the life 
of a U.S. postal worker, and they condemned him to death by hanging and put him in prison. Andrew Jackson was our president at the time, and he heard about this, and he uh, thought that that was a little bit steep because even though he had threatened the man at gunpoint, he really had not caused any physical harm to him and had not uh, caused him to lose his life, and he thought that hanging might be a little bit more of a severe punishment than needed. And so Andrew Jackson wrote a presidential pardon for George Wilson. And um, they sent it down, and the, the warden of the prison went to the cell, and he told Mr. Wilson, he said, I've got good news for you. The president has written you a pardon. And George Wilson said, I don't want it. He said, I did the crime. I deserve to pay for it. The or warden didn't know what to do about that. He never dreamed that somebody would reject a pardon. And so he sent it back to the state Supreme Court, and they said this is a federal matter, and they sent it all the way up to the United States Supreme Court, the highest court in the land. The United States Supreme Court made a ruling in those late 1800s that is still on the books today and is still in effect today. And the ruling was this, that a pardon no matter whose signature is on it, until it is received, it is just a piece of paper. And George Wilson denied that pardon that day. Can I tell you this? The Lord Jesus Christ wrote every one of us a pardon 2,000 years ago on Calvary. He signed it with His own blood. He offers it to us freely. But until you're willing to put your faith in it. And what I told Damon, I said, I don't know why... George Wilson did that. I don't know. I wasn't there. I didn't get to question him. It may have been that he didn't trust the warden. He didn't trust the, the piece of paper. It may have been that he thought somebody was trying to, trying to pull the wool over his eyes by offering this, getting his hopes up, and then dashing them. I don't know. But I said if he would have just simply put his faith in what the president had done for him, he would have been able to be pardoned. God makes salvation so simple, so easy. It's just a matter of putting our faith and our trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and what He's promised us. That if we would do that, that He would save us from our sins, that He would give us forgiveness. We would escape the penalty of our sin. <clears throat> I was listening to a preacher a couple weeks ago, several, probably a couple months ago now, and uh, he was out in an open air area and he was... Uh, telling people how to be saved. And a lady was questioning him. He had talked about the fact that uh, there are people in heaven that got there um, by trusting the Lord as their Savior. And this lady said, well, what does it take to get to heaven? And the preacher said, perfection. It takes perfection. The lady said, but you just said everybody has sinned. He said, yes, that's right. She said, you also said that there are already people in heaven. He said, yes, that's right. She said, how do you explain that? He said, grace. Because when we are willing to trust the Lord Jesus Christ, what He did on Calvary 2,000 years ago, His death, His burial, His resurrection, we trust that happened. That He was who He said He was. That He will do what He said He will do. When we put our faith in that, the Lord Jesus takes His righteousness, His perfection, and He puts it on our account. 
And now I can be reconciled to a holy God. I can commune with Him. I can talk with Him. I can have fellowship with Him. My question today is, have you trusted Him as your Savior? Have you put your faith in what the Lord Jesus Christ has already done for you? Can you be part of this group that Paul was speaking to? That you sorrow not even as others which have no hope? In other words, you have hope. You have hope. We're not to be ignorant. We're not to sorrow as others which have no hope. And then I want you to notice, as he gets to the end of explaining that the Lord is going to come back, the dead will rise first, but then we which are alive and still remain until that time, we're going to be caught up together with them in the clouds. And we're going to meet the Lord in the air. And the Bible says, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. We will never be out of His presence from that time on. And then he says this in verse number 17, or verse number 18, excuse me. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. What are we supposed to be doing until the Lord comes back? Well, we shouldn't be ignorant. We should be living holy. We shouldn't be ignorant. We should have hope. And we should comfort one another with the things that we've learned from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. We're to be talking about it. We're to be bringing a comfort, not only to other brothers and sisters in Christ, Can I say this, that even those who have never trusted Christ as their Savior, do you know what kind of a comfort it would be to their heart to hear the gospel message and to get their matter of salvation settled? We're to be going around talking about what the Lord Jesus Christ has done. We're to be sharing the gospel message. We're to be telling others what He's done for me and what He's done for you. He goes on in chapter number 5. He says, but of the times and the seasons, brethren, we have no need, you have no need that I write unto you, for yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so cometh as a thief in the night. For when they shall say peace and safety, then sudden destruction cometh upon them as travail upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape. But ye, brethren, are not in darkness that that day should overtake you as a thief. Ye are all the children of light and the children of the day. We are not of the night nor of darkness. Let us not... Notice this, sleep as do others, but let us what? What? Watch and be sober. Watch and be sober. What are we watching for? We're watching for the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're to be sober-minded. We're to be be focused on some things. We're to be focused on, and this is how we're to be this side of heaven, as God's people, we're to be focused on the fact that that the Lord Jesus Christ could come right now. He could come in any moment. If we live with this mindset in mind, if we do what Paul has said here, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, if we, if we are watchful and, and not let this day overtake us as a thief, we're not going to be surprised when it happens. We ought to be watching for it to happen. We ought to be living in such a way that we're saying, by our life and the way that we conduct ourselves, I'm ready for Him to come. I want to be living that way when He comes. I'm to be watchful. I'm to be sober. I'm to be focused on it. I'm not to have my mind overly distracted by the things of this world so that I don't think about eternity. I'm amazed as I get older 
And some of you can relate to this. How much more precious heaven seems to be. How much more ready we're ready for the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. That when we were younger, maybe we weren't quite that way about it. Because we weren't thinking in terms of eternity. But as we get older, we begin to slow down a little bit. We begin to think of these things. We begin to be watchful for His return. How are we supposed to be living until He returns? We're to be holy. We're not to be ignorant. We're to be studying and knowing Scripture and knowing what it says. We're not to sorrow as others which have no hope. We're to have a hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. We're to edify and we're to comfort one another with these words. And then we're to be watchful and we're to be sober. Watching for that blessed hope. Titus chapter 2 says, Looking for the blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, who gave Himself for us that He might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto Himself a peculiar people zealous of good works. Oh, that we would be looking for the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior. And then notice that He says this. In verse number 8, He says, But let us who are of the day, be sober, putting on, notice this, the breastplate of faith and love. And for a helmet, the hope of salvation. We ought to be characterized as people of faith. We ought to be characterized as people of love. And we ought to be characterized as people who have full confidence in this hope of salvation. That's how we're supposed to be living. People, when they see us, they ought to say, boy, there's a person of faith. If the Bible says it, they just have no better sense than to just believe it. And by the way, I wish I had that, that kind of sense more often. How often I was reading a, uh, an article this week written by a fellow. He said, how often faith is mixed with unbelief. I was reminded of the man who came to the Lord Jesus Christ and asking for the Lord to do a miracle for him. And he said, if thou believest uh, with all thy heart, and he said, Lord, I believe. Notice what he said, help thou my unbelief. Isn't it amazing, even in a Christian's life, how often our faith is mingled with a little bit of unbelief. In fact, in Psalm 10, we were in there this morning for Sunday school. When, when the psalmist is praying for God to judge the wicked, he says, and, for, and forsake not uh, the poor. Hey, I want, I want you to do something on behalf of the poor. And by the way, don't forget them. Don't forget them. And while there was a, a prayer of faith, it was mingled with just the slightest little bit of, Lord, don't forget us. We're being oppressed. We're being hurt by the wicked. Don't forget us. Keep us in mind. We need to be putting on a breastplate of faith and love and have this hope of salvation. And then once again, he tells us in verse number 11, Wherefore, comfort yourselves together. And then I want you to notice this. And here it is. Edify one another. The idea of edifying is to build up, to strengthen, to undergird, to encourage uh, When we think about eternity, let me rephrase that. When we begin to talk with each other about eternity, it encourages us. It strengthens our faith. It brings joy to our hearts. It brings peace to our hearts. 
Paul said, edify one another with these things. How should we be living until we get to heaven? Two questions. If you're here today, you say, Pastor, I don't know if I died right now, I'd go to heaven. I don't know if I'm saved. Are you ready? If he were to come back today, are you ready? And for Christians that are here, are we living the way that Paul was telling this church to live? Or are we at the place where that church was? Are we at the place of just kind of putting everything on hold because they expected Christ's return right away? No, there's some things we should be doing. There's some things we should be holding to. There's some ways we should be living until that return happens. And the question to Christians is, are you ready? Are you ready? Let's stand together, shall we, with heads bowed? Lord, we're thankful for Your Word. We pray that You'll bless the time that is spent around it today. Guide and direct our steps. Help us to know and understand these things. 